0: Lord, thank you for Sundays. Thank you for the way that you have set apart the Lord's Day week after week for us to gather and assemble a Christian people and worship and praise you, and especially look back to the joy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we really do every week. We thank you that next week we get to focus on it in particular. I pray that you would just get our hearts ready for that celebration. Lord, I pray for this class now that you would give us grace to understand the lessons of sanctification unfolded so powerfully for us in Romans 6 through 8, and that we would put into practice the things that we learn in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, as we continue to go through uh, in this class on sanctification and uh, more specifically negative sanctification, mortification, uh, my, my central lesson or, or uh, exhortation to you is that Romans 6 through 8 contains everything you need for life and godliness in the area of sanctification. This is, this is the textbook on sanctification. Doesn't, doesn't matter whatever John Owen or other people wrote that's helpful. We're going to get to that next week, a little bit today. But, uh, and, and those things are helpful, just like any good sermon or good Bible study is helpful, but the text stands. And so Romans 6, 7, and 8 gives us all of the principles we need for life as justified sinners. Uh, having come to faith in Christ, we're justified, we're forgiven. Um, how then shall we live? And uh, in this church, we have given a dual answer to that question. We, we glorify God by making progress in two journeys, the internal journey of holiness, sanctification, the external journey of gospel advance through evangelism and um, missions. So those things are intertwined, but we're focusing in this class on the internal journey of holiness. So just by way of review, we're going to uh, kind of zero in on the, at the very end of Romans 6, but Romans 6 begins by saying, what then shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? We thank God that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Um, We're grateful for that, but we don't want to test God's patience. We're not trying to give a lesson, an object lesson, and how much sin God can cover every day. No, not at all. That's not how we want to live. So may it never be. Part of sanctification is to grow within us a heart revulsion for wickedness and evil and sin, similar to God's, which will be consummated in heaven when we completely conform to Christ in our opinion about wickedness or sin or evil. We will feel and think about it the way he does. Sanctification is a a process whereby internally, in terms of our mind, in terms of our heart, we grow to hate sin the way God does, and then we live that out by putting sin to death and by being increasingly holy. That's sanctification. All right, so we must not continue in sin that grace may abound, Romans 6, 1 and 2. We must realize the essential teaching, a a mystical or spiritual union between us and Christ. That we have become one with Christ through faith. We were buried with him through baptism into, into death. And we were raised with him by the power of the Spirit into a new life. And we are to walk in newness of life. And that all comes from our union with Christ. And it's something that we tend to overlook but just like the vine and the branches teaching, apart from Jesus, we cannot be holy. Apart from Jesus, we cannot walk for even a single moment in holiness. We cannot put sin to death apart from Christ. So we are united with Him. There's a union. Uh, we were buried with Him through baptism and a death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, then he says, we must realize... In verse 6, that our old self was crucified with Christ. What that means is who you were in Adam, who God saw you to be positionally in Adam, that person is dead forever and will never come alive again. Your old man positionally, who you were seen to be by God in Adam, that person is dead. And you have been made a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You have been made a new man. You are now seen, not in the old Adam, but in the new Adam. You're seen in Christ. And that's justification. You were seen in him. And so that old self was crucified once and for all, forever. That person can never come alive again. Old self, positionally crucified with him. In order that, secondly, the body of sin might be increasingly rendered powerless. So those are distinctions that we have to make that many Christians don't make. I think they read verse 6 and they just blow right through and not quite sure the terminology. Something good about us being in, uh, Christians. I mean, it's like no, that's, we need to be precise about these things. There's a difference between our old man and our body of sin. They're different things. They're related but different. Old man is positional language, dead forever. Body of sin, you're sitting in it right now. <laughs> you walked in and uh, up the stairs, you drove in that body of sin here. you got to deal with it. And that body of sin or mortal body uh, is going to be an issue for you the rest of your lives. And we're going to make that clear from Romans 7. But the body of sin has to be rendered increasingly inert. It's got to be rendered increasingly powerless to torment you. And that is possible. It's not going to be fully completed in this life. We don't teach perfectionism here in this church. We don't believe in entire sanctification like some uh, Methodists taught. We don't believe in that. We think that you're going to keep on laboring and struggling with sin. There are going to, are going to be uh, genuine battles that you'll have to fight until the day you die. But the body of sin can be rendered increasingly powerless to the end that, as we would observe your life, you're not acting like a slave to sin. You're not living a life of slavery to sin. That's what Romans 6.6 is saying. And so that's where we got the idea of slaying temptations and starving sin. Individual temptations can be killed, must be killed. Um, however, the body of sin cannot be killed by you. Uh, that will end, that battle will end when you, are, uh, when you die or at the second coming of Christ. All right, so therefore, verse 11 gives us the first commandment that we have in the book of Romans, and that is that we must consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You need to think of yourself that way. Think of yourself in a new way. Don't allow the devil to lie to you saying sin is inevitable. That is that defeatist language that the devil tries to speak so he can weaken your resolve to fight. You don't have to ever sin again. Never. And and I think that becomes obvious when you look back after a sin and you try to say to the Lord or to the Holy Spirit, there was nothing I could do. You know I had to sin. He will never agree with you. He will always say, I gave you everything you need to escape. I gave you everything you need to stand up in that day of testing and you failed. And so you just need to confess that. It doesn't mean you're not justified, you're not adopted as a child of God anymore, but just that you sin and you need to be honest. It's, it's completely on you. And so you have to think of yourself going forward. It's even more powerful going forward. I don't need to sin now. I don't have to be an ungodly husband or ungodly uh, church member or an ungodly employee or ungodly in this or that specific area. I don't ever need to sin again. Think of yourself as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then, having thought of yourself that way, then comes the issue of presentation. This is all by way of review from Romans 6. But you are to present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. The presentation, what does that mean to you, to present the members of your body? Ready for service, like a soldier. I think that's a good image, or a slave. I mean, right in this text, you are the slave to the master you obey. So the master-slave analogy is a good one. We shouldn't run from it. The text uses it. You're not a slave to sin, you're a slave to Christ. You're a slave to God. Paul was proud to call himself a bond slave of Christ. And so for us to say Christ is my master, and he's a good master. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but he is my master. He has the right to command me. you guys you guys agree with that, don't you? That Jesus has the right to command you. <laughs> don't be deceived. All right, on that. So if if that's true, then make it practical. All right, you have the right to command my hands. Make them move. You know, I'm going to go into a hymn now, but at the impulse of your love. You know, let my hands be servants to what you want them to do. Let my feet go. I mean, so often the analogy of the Christian life is walking. We're, We're walking in newness of life. That walking is that practical left foot, right foot, daily life. So we're going to have a Christian walk. So you're going to present your feet to God. You're going to present your hands to God. You're going to present your mouth. James says that's the hardest member of all, the tongue. If you can get the tongue under control, what does James say? You're a perfect man. I mean, if we're talking perfection, if you can say, I have not said anything in the last year except exactly what God wanted me to say, James would say, congratulations, you are the one perfect man on planet Earth over that last year. It's that hard to control. Why? Because the tongue reflects the state of the heart. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, and your heart's divided. And we're gonna talk about that in Romans 7. It's not a pure heart. Not yet. Someday it will be. Praise God. But right now it's not. And so therefore your, your tongue is just going to be out of the same mouth comes fresh water and salt water. Out of the same bush come figs and thorns. And he says, dear friends, this should not be. Amen. <laughs> but it is. And so the tongue, but the tongue is a member. The mind is a member. And so I'm going to think godly thoughts. I'm going to present my mind, my, my conscious thought life to God as an instrument of righteousness. This is, this is the presentation. He's going to sum all this up again in Romans 12, very famous, present your body to him as a living sacrifice. But he's just, that's just a summary of what we already learned here in Romans 6, 12 through 14. All right, so now that brings us to the issue of developing new habits. Now, this is, this is where we were last week. Someone read verse 19, 619. Okay, so the key idea here, first of all, the structure of the verse is a just-as-so-also structure, right? So what you used to do, I want you to do again. And that's a bit strange because we're talking about your wicked pagan life. Now, again, this means, I think, a lot more when you're talking about adult converts. All right? Like kids that were raised in Christian homes and super saturated with the gospel, they, they don't have a life of wickedness. I mean, uh, we know that compared to God, they are, but it's just there's not an apparent. But if you're talking about a Roman pagan who was leading the Roman pagan life, and then some messenger of the gospel came after the day of Pentecost, got out there, Paul didn't plant the church in Rome. Some other, others did. And so some, some Christians led some, some Romans to Christ and then that became the nucleus of the, of the Roman church. So you remember your pagan life? Remember how it was, was for you when you were pagan all that time as a Roman citizen? Uh, a, a servant of Satan? That's what he's talking about. So, so I'm going to use an analogy just so you understand. This is just an analogy. All analogies are somewhat flawed, but I'm going to put it in human terms because it's hard for you to understand. But I want to just try to explain. Just as so also. So what is he picking up that he wants them to continue from their pagan life? There's an aspect of your pagan life I want you to do some more now, but in a whole new way. And the the idea has to do with a presentation of the members leading to an ever-increasing pattern. You see, that's what he's picking up on. A presentation of the members leads to, in the old case, ever-increasing what? Wickedness. Wickedness. You kept doing it and and you did it more and more. You were more and more addicted. We would like to use the language of addiction. Or you were more and more ingrained or entrenched in patterns of wickedness. Remember that? Remember how you used to live? And it it was never enough. The law of diminishing returns, you just kept doing more and more. It got more and more weird and gross. Remember that? Remember ever-increasing wickedness. Well, I want you to do that now, but on the right side of the ledger. What is he talking about? What does he want them to do now? It's similar to what they used to do, but now much more you know, for the purpose of holiness. What, what does he want them to do? Slavery to righteousness, Slavery to righteousness okay? Same intensity. And, and how do we see the issue of ever-increasing now in the Christian life? What's the ever-increasing thing in the Christian life? Holiness. The holiness. Mm-hmm. So I get out of this, there's different things you get out of this, but I like the word habit, okay? What, what's a habit? What does the word habit mean to you? repeatedly. I, I think habits naturally, but I would, I would choose the word repeatedly, something you do again and again and again. Let me ask you a question. Are habits good? <laughs> some of you nodded, some of you shook your head. Yeah, you're right. There it is. Habit, I mean, it'd be like me saying, are words good? It's like, mm, yes, no, There are bad words and there are good words. All right. So it is. What about, here's another example. Uh, ambition. Is ambition good? Can be, could be bad. Depends what we're tied to. If you're tied to becoming the richest man on earth, that's a bad ambition. The Bible says anyone who desires to be rich pierces himself, and and the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So that's a bad ambition. Um, But how about an ambition to take the gospel where Christ was not named so you wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation, to go into unreached people groups? That's a good ambition. So I I can't answer the question. I don't know whether ambition is good or bad. You've got to tell me what it's tied to. And so it is with habits. I don't know if they're good or bad. They're good habits, bad habits. We know that very well. People get addicted to cigarettes. They get addicted to food. They get addicted to all kinds of things that are just evil and they corrupt them. So they're bad habits. But there are good habits too. So look at the verse again. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. In that same way now, we're going to flip it over and do it entirely on the other side of the ledger. We're going to offer the members of your body in slavery to righteousness. You could have put God in there or Jesus or the Spirit. Uh, There's a lot of things, but just the good side of the kingdom of God leading to holiness or with the results of holiness. This is the... The, the machine of sanctification here. It's developing godly habits and getting them more and more ingrained. Like what? What kind of godly habits do we have in mind that lead to holiness? So a habit of prayer. Is prayer a habit? Well, it should be. So you have a certain pattern and a certain time and you do it again and again and again. And you can expand it, but there's a, a habitual aspect to prayer. I would add Bible intake as a habit. So you're just reading the Bible. You have certain patterns you're following. Um, scripture memorization. Going to church on Sundays. Fellowship. Christ. There's certain rhythms to your life. And then go beyond that as well. And again, I want to say positive or the negative. There are good habits that tend towards sanctification. And then there's the neg- negative habits that also tend towards sanctification in a good way. And mortification is one of those. Where we get in the habit of putting sin to death. That's, that's negative, but it's still ultimately heading, heading toward holiness. We're, we're going to, as soon as you, you know that something's causing you trouble, you're going to kill that thing. You're going to cut off the right hand, gouge out the right eye. You just are, are fierce about holiness. You're determined to be holy. That's a good habit to be in. So anyway, 619. I, it's just a very, very important verse on sanctification. Any questions about it before we go into Romans 7? All right, let's go ahead. Let's move on now to Romans 7. Now, Romans Romans 6 gave the basic principles, everything, all the basic positive principles you need for sanctification in Romans 6. Romans 7 tells you, yes, but what? (laughs) Romans 6 gives you, you're not not a slave to sin. This is what you ought to do, whatever. What is Romans 7 going to stop you and say to you? I mean, you guys guys have read Romans 7 before, haven't you? All right, what's this chapter going to be about? Indwelling sin. So you've got to go in with your eyes clear to know what it's going to be like between now and the day you die. And what is it going to be like until, between now and the day you die? Is it going to get increasingly easy? It's going to be a battle. Until when? Until the day you die. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to fight for this. Do not expect an easy journey to heaven. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. Peter said that. Paul also said, through much tribulation and trial we must enter the kingdom of God. You cannot go easily into the kingdom. And the reason is the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's why. So we've got this combination of enemies. This chapter predominantly focuses on what's generally known as the flesh. What the NIV uh, translates, the sinful nature. I like to keep it flesh because, you know, I just want people to wrestle with what it means every verse. Try to understand... The, the term and, and get the sense of it. But, but what he's going to say in Romans 7 is, you are going to have to fight for holiness. Do not expect it to be easy. It's going to be hard. You're going to be facing for the first time who you really are, who you really were in Adam and the residuals of that through your bad habits. You know, and, and you're going to still, the body, I, I tell you, Romans 6.19 is true negatively for us as well. You're still fighting bad habits. You, every time you sin and then do that same sin again, that's a bad habit. If you've done that, even as a Christian, a lot, like a habit of, let's say, arguing with your wife pridefully about certain things, arguing about money, arguing about different things, that's a bad habit. If you've done that a lot over the years, then it's an entrenched bad habit. It didn't matter that you didn't do it before you were a Christian because probably many of you were Christians before you met your wife or got married. So this is something that's happened entirely during the time you've been a new creation in Christ. You've developed new bad habits. It happens. But you've got to fight them. And so Romans 7 tells you why it's so hard, why this fight is so fierce. So let's try to understand the chapter. So he begins in verses 1 through 6 with an analogy from marriage. Can someone read this text for us? S- uh, 7, 1 through 6. Okay, so he's using an analogy to talk about a decisive change, a break that's happened from your old life now to your new life. And he's using the analogy of a marriage covenant. And so a husband and wife, when they take those vows as they stand before God, they are married till death, us part. There's a a permanent um, relationship between the husband and wife, a binding together until death ends that covenant. Paul is using that language to talk about a severing of the Christian in terms of his relationship with the law, the old covenant, specifically in its condemning power. In other words, the law was after you. The law was like a federal marshal hunting you down. And for you to get that guy's cell phone number and call and say, could you just give me a break and go do someone else? What do you think he's going to say? You see, remember the, few, the movie Fugitive, whatever, is it, Tommy Lee Jones? He's coming after, uh, I forget the other actor's name, Harrison Ford, and he's going to come after till he gets it. Well, the law is even more determined to hunt you down and kill you. All right, why? Because it's, uh, it's God's law. And uh, so we have to understand the word law is complex. The whole Paul and the law thing in Romans 7 is not easy. But I really look at it this way, that the law was committed to you and not for good. It was committed to kill you. You had violated God's moral principles. And so you were under that law until you died. Because you know, the wages of sin is death. And so the, the, the law has a death penalty. But God interposed Jesus between you and the law and he took your death penalty for you. And so in Christ, you did die. Thanks be to God. And that broke that old relationship with the law. Now, I believe in a new relationship with the law. And we'll talk about that in Romans 8 in just a moment. We have a new, delightful, wonderful relationship with the law in a different way. But that's not exactly what Paul's going into right now. He's talking about being under the law. And that means under the law is penalty. Under the law is a condemner that will not break off from you until you are dead. And so you had to die. And so once in the movie, I guess Tom Lee Jones finds out that Harrison Ford is dead, he's done. He's going to go do something else. There's no need to pursue him. He's a dead man. There's nothing else to do. He'll go on to the next case. So that's the analogy he's using. You now, however, have come to life. It's a complex image, but you've now come to life and you're in a covenant relationship with a new a new commitment, a new person, really. The law was embodied, but now you basically have a new husband. You have a new marriage, and that's with Christ. And the fruit that you bear in that new marriage is fruit for righteousness and holiness, and that's a covenant commitment relationship between you and Christ. That's the image in verses 1 through 6. Any questions? This is a complex section, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to give it its due honor as, as inspired scripture, but I want to get into the Rest of Romans 7. Any questions about the image here? All right, let's move on then. Let's talk about verses 7 through 12. Someone read verses 7 through 12 here. Okay, so if you get the analogy from verse 1 through 6, it seems like the old husband in the image was abusive, right? A bad husband from which it was well that you were severed by death. Now you've got a much better husband, and thanks be to God, you're in a better relationship now. Paul does not want you to think that. He actually wants you to think properly about the law. Is there anything wrong with the law? Is there something wrong with the law? No. The law, he says in verse 12, is holy and righteous and good. Well then what's the problem? You are. <laughs> You're the problem and me. We are the problem. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is not sin. The law is not sinister. It's not evil or wicked. Now, why is he really why is it really important for him to make this point to us? That we need to understand that the law is a a wonderful good thing. Okay, so that would be half, maybe not half, but a good chunk of the answer is that we fully own how wicked we are. And if we minimize that, whatever, we won't allow that negative part of the work of the law to be fully operative in our lives. If we're going to do what Dave said, which we tend to do, minimize, rationalize, etc., then the law will not have had its full way with us. We need to realize there's this shiny, uh, perfect, beautiful thing that became somehow an instrument of our death. And if it's pure and perfect and holy and good, how corrupt must we be that something so beautiful was the instrument of our death? That's the argument he's making here. So let's really try to expand just how corrupt we really are. And I think the law wants to show that to us. Like, I mean, look at Jesus' summary of the law. The first and greatest commandment is what? Love God with every fiber of your being. Do you think that that's holy and righteous and good? You better believe that's holy and righteous and good. The fact that you can't do it, the fact that actually when you were unconverted, you didn't love God but hated Him. Do you not see how corrupt you are? How evil you are? And the second commandment is like it. What's wrong with loving your neighbors yourself? Nothing, but I couldn't do it. I hated my neighbor. I was filled with seething resentments and bitterness and irritability and covetousness and all kinds of wickedness. How wicked must I be? There was nothing wrong with the commandments. Something wrong with me. So that's part of it. But the second is, Paul is effectively in Romans 8 going to reintroduce you to the law and say, now live like this. He's going to give you the law and say, now by the Spirit, apart from condemning power of the law, this is exactly the life you're going to live especially Christ's summary of the law. For the rest of your lives, you're going to love God and you're going to love your neighbor. Rest of your life. That is exactly the law you're going to live. Now, I'm not talking about the ceremonial law, circumcision, all that. It's another complexity. It's not an easy issue here. But I am talking about what's generally known as the moral law of which Jesus' summary is the best summary there is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the moral law. That's going to be with you to the rest of your life. It's going, be, it's going to be with you in heaven. Only in heaven, it won't be law. You don't need to be commanded to love God, love neighbor in heaven. You just will. It's similar to like, I, I've likened it to uh, prohibitions. Uh, that the TSA I found is very against hijacking, among other things. And, and I, just, I, I just want to tell them how much I am not tempted to hijack a plane. I want them to just know that about me. And if they would just know that there's just no part of me that has any desire to hijack a plane, they just let me walk through. I don't need to take my shoes off or my belt or any of that stuff. They just let me walk through. And you all too. But we understand they can't do this because they don't really know who we are. First John 3 says, the reason the world doesn't know us is it didn't know Jesus. So they didn't know Jesus, they don't know us. Fine, we got to take off our shoes and we got to go through the Fine. But in heaven, I will not need to be commanded to love God and I will not need to be commanded or else to love my neighbor. I just will we'll be just so far beyond the need for the command. We can kind of live like that now, and we're going to see that, you know, the more we, I understand that there's still a need because we've got indwelling sin. We still need commandments, but that's where we're heading. So he wants us to realize there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and righteous and good. But instead, Paul gives us an autobiographical story. You know, I was alive apart from the law. There was a time I was alive, but then once I understood, as I would imagine a little Jewish boy, in the synagogue and I was learning the Ten Commandments. And I came across that commandment, you shall not covet. And I asked some questions of my teachers saying, what is coveting? Well, it's when you see the good things that other people have in their lives and and you feel negative thoughts about them and you you desire, well, what kind of good things? And he starts asking questions about coveting and all that. And what ends up happening through that process? He learns to covet. covet. (laughs) He learns what coveting is by coveting. And it's like, I didn't even, know what it was. But then when the commandment came, sin came from within me. And it's a great mystery how it was in him as a little boy, but it has to do with that union we had with Adam. There is a propensity inside us to disobey the law, but we need a specific command for that propensity to work on. And when that commandment comes, sin rises up and meets it and joins with it to condemn us. So that would argue somewhat for the so-called age of accountability and all that. If you don't understand there is an invisible being, God, who created the universe, and then who has given us moral precepts by which we need to live, we can't sin. Not like Adam did. So that's the age of innocence with infants and all that. They don't understand a God who gives a moral command. But once children, somewhere in there they do, they get that there's an invisible being called God who made everything, right? And he wants you to do certain things and wants you not to do other things. You guys are parents. What have you noticed? Well, I remember when I was preaching through this, I was using an illustration of a big package coming uh, with your kids' names on it, where uh, or, or you'd say, Do not open this package, and this means you, and then my kids' names, and just leave it there on the table. I mean, that, and what's going to happen? I'm not saying they would have opened the package, but yeah, go ahead, Matthew. I thought you had your hand gonna it. Shake it. Yeah, you're going to shake I'm it. Maybe nibble at it a bit. I didn't think that was literally opening if I just slid open and, you know, that's, but that's, that's what the law does combined with our corrupt nature in Adam. And so we got from Adam the death penalty, but we also got mysteriously from Adam, a propensity, a tendency to disobey. And so we ratify our Adamic nature. As soon as the commandment comes and we understand it, we're going to violate it. And so we become actual sinners, just like Adam did. I believe no one goes to hell because of just the first sin. Of it, many theologians agree with me. I don't believe in infant damnation. I believe we go to hell for the second category of sins where the moral law is violated. We violate our conscience and we know we've done wrong, and etc. That's people all over the world. I don't want to get into all that, but those are my thoughts. So for me, instead, at the end in verse 12, he's saying the commandment is holy and righteous and good just like the psalmist does in Psalm 119 for 176 verses, or Psalm 19, could someone read Psalm 19, 7 and 8 for us? Look at the adjectives that David uses to describe the law. Do you see it? Perfect, right? Trustworthy, right, uh, radiant. That's the law according to uh, spirit-filled David as he's writing the psalm. And you would have to think, some people think that, that Psalm 119, which is just an expanded meditation on the beauty and the glory of the law, the law. The law is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and all that. Really, it's good to see that as Christ's attitude toward the moral law. He who actually did fulfill it. He who actually did live under the moral law every day of his life. It's, oh, how I love your law. I delight in its precepts. I yearn to live it out. I meditate on it day and night. That's Jesus. So Jesus lived out the way we all should have felt about the law. It's a beautiful thing. All right, so let's keep going now. Um, Sin is insanity, all right? So you just summarize. I don't understand myself. I don't get me. I don't know why I do what I do. Can someone read this section for us, 13 through 20? All right, this is a very, very powerful section and absolutely vital for us to understand this. Vital, all right? Uh, one of the big theological debates about this section of Romans is, is Paul speaking as a converted person or is he kind of transporting himself back in his pre-Christ days and talking about the process by which he came to the realization he needed a Savior. And it's a weighty thing with weighty theologians on both sides and I I don't think that you can make a, a final pronouncement, but I think there's some pretty strong indications right within the text that Paul's talking as a Christian. And I think for me, me, the clearest is the language of no longer. It's no longer I who do it. Doesn't the word no longer imply a decisive change in something? It was this way, now it's this way. No longer. It's no longer I who sin, but it's sin living in me. So that language, and he says it twice in here, I think. Uh, Maybe verse, uh, do I have it listed for you guys? Did I list it? Yeah, I did. 17 and 20. Yeah, they're later in, in... All right, so as it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. And then verse 20, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. So that, I, I, I think that's, to me, that is the argument. I just don't know how he would use that language as a still unconverted Jew waiting to come to, the, come to Christ. So if it's true that this is the great leader the Apostle Paul talking like this, why is that both encouraging and discouraging? (laughs) What what great sins was Paul committing? Well, it's funny too, like with child conversions, you you see like a a three-year-old, you know, I was sinking deep in sin, far from this, like at age three, I'm just trying to understand. But of course, the easy, easy answer is compared to the holiness of God, we're all corrupt to some degree. But how would you say this is both encouraging and discouraging, if this really is the mighty Apostle Paul talking like this. Yeah, so it's encouraging because, let's start with just just the autobiographical comment. This is me. When I read this, it's like I know exactly what this is talking about. I really do. Because I have so many holy aspirations that come to nothing. I have so many sin habits that I thought would have been gone out of my life a long time ago, and they seem to be just as strong now as they were 10 years ago. And uh, that's a, this easily the most grievous thing in my life. There's nothing even close. Nothing else has the power to make me so miserable and sad and depressed as my own sin. And so when I read this, it's like when you find somebody who really knows how you feel, it's very encouraging. So it's actually, we'll start with encouraging. It's, it's encouraging to find out that you can feel these feelings and still be a justified sinner on his way definitely to heaven. That's very comforting. Why would I say it's discouraging too? Yeah, it's it's like, boy, sin must be really powerful. Friends, it is. And if you look at what God, in the end, providentially, in redemptive history, has to do to solve the sin problem, it's really pretty staggering. I'm going to be talking about that for a second time this morning in, in my sermon of of heavenly memories and say we're going to look, look back, and, and I'm going to speak much more positively about God's grace working through men and women throughout 20-plus centuries of church history. Putting that glorious New Jerusalem together, we're going to find out how he did it. And we're going to celebrate how he did it. And we're going to see his triumphant sovereign power and grace magnificently displayed there. That's basically, in a nutshell, the sermon. So you don't need to go to worship now, although your spouses will wonder where you are if you go home. I'll wonder too, because I want you to hear the details. But it is a hard fight to defeat sin, it's been hard. It's a stubborn stain to remove. It's not like God just sovereignly snapped his fingers and all was well. He decided to unfold a very painful, laborious, challenging story, including even our own individual salvation. The steps of our salvation are so humbling. Justification by faith alone. Sanctification through a long, wearying, difficult process where there seem to be far more defeats than victories. Glorification where he effectively does snap his fingers twice and makes you perfect in soul and then in body. Bang, and you're like, "What a wretched, pe- what a wretched people we are! That this is what it took to save us. That in the end, the only thing that finally could save us is God's direct activity on us by His sovereign power." But He wanted us to know that and learn it, <laughs> and so we went through all of this. So, encouraging and, and discouraging alike. All right, so let's let's walk through it. Let me just ask you a question: Why do you think it's so vital for Christians to understand the struggle struggle with indwelling sin, as Paul describes it here in this passage? Why is this vital for us to understand? Yeah, I mean, I think about like I read histories like of World War I where everybody thought they're going to be home by Christmas. And it's like you don't have any idea what you're about to go into. I mean, every nation, Germany, France, England, what they're about to go and what it would do to them. Vastly underestimating that. Jay, go ahead. Well, First John in particular, because of its simple language, is, can be very discouraging. You know, and, and in him is no sin. Anyone who's born of him does not sin. And you're like, whoa, (laughs) and you just read that. But it's just the way John chooses to write. Most of the modern translations tend to put in habitual type language, sin habitually. But even that isn't incredibly encouraging. Probably the only thing that really helped me in reference to 1 John is 1 John 1.5, where it says, um, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we walk in darkness, like we're talking about, if you walk in darkness, uh, you you have not been born again. That's effectively what he says. But verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. So the idea that you can both walk in the light, as John means it, and need a continual cleansing from sin is very encouraging to me. And he goes right from that, if we say we have not sinned, we lie, but if we confess our sins, so he's just giving us that ongoing, you know, and then he says, dear friends, I write this so you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So yeah, it's not teaching perfectionism, but I appreciate that. So we want to keep that in mind. I think it's a valid question for a person who's deeply entrenched in habitual sin to ask, have I really been born again? I think definitely we would say that. So let's go on with this deeply divided nature uh, we Christians, we can say, as one Puritan writer put it, we never wholeheartedly do anything. There's not a single thing you do in your life wholeheartedly. So what do I mean by that? You don't, are you saying, Pastor, that I don't pray wholeheartedly? Well, do you? Do you pray 100% with every fiber of your being? Or is there some part of you that wishes you would stop praying? See what I'm saying? Then you flip it around. You don't totally sin with every fiber of your being. Is there not anything within you telling you stop it This is wicked, of course, if you're genuinely a Christian, the Holy Spirit's screaming out against your sin while you do it. You you don't do anything wholeheartedly. And so we are, to some degree, from the heavenly perspective, lovable monstrosities. He loves us as adopted sons and daughters, but we are monstrous because we're so divided and weird. Unbelievers sin wholeheartedly with no hesitation, all right? The redeemed in heaven and the angels, they do righteously, wholeheartedly, with no reservation. And we're in between. So we just need to know this. We need to know this. We need to know that we're going to have this, this battle uh, for the rest of our lives. There is an insanity to sin. Somebody read verse 15, right? I don't understand me. I don't understand what I do. And the thing that I hate, I do. So I, it's, you're open at that point to a simple question, right? Right? then why do you do it? And how can you answer that question? Paul actually already answered it. If you ask him, why, then why do you sin? What would he say? Sin dwelling in me. But I think he would say in the end, I don't know. I don't know why I do it. I, I mean, I know it's evil. I, my, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I see the beauty of it. I wish I could love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself. I wish I would never do any acts of wickedness again the rest of my life. So I really just don't have an answer. It's just, it, a sin is just essentially irrational. I mean, think of it. Just go back to the actual origin of it that a beautiful, pure, holy angel could look at God and say, I want your job. I'm going I'm to take you on. I mean, doesn't that seem as insane? That the basic origination is, as far as we understand it of evil of ambition and satan wanting to take god's place and topple him from his throne it's like do you have any idea the gap between me and you do you have any idea how infinitely far above you i am and that all of your beauty and your shining light and all that came from me as a gift and you're going to take all that and fight me he actually thinks he can win and we've bought into his little lie and we're thinking we can be our own little gods and goddesses too and we can run our own little worlds. It's just insanity to take God on. Of course it's insanity. It's just, I mean, what does that mean? Insane, like unhealthy thinking, like sick thinking. That's what it is. Do you remember in, in Daniel chapter 4 where God turned uh, turned Nebuchadnezzar into a beast? It's just an animal. You just, all right, fine, you're an animal. For seven years, he's an animal. And then God touched him again and his sanity was restored and the first thing he did was praise God. That's just so powerful to me. I lifted up my eyes, and I, I praised and worshipped the God of heaven. I'm like, when you are made right in your mind, that's what you'll do. You will praise and worship God. It's when you're insane that you don't. So there's an essential irrationality to sin. All right, so beyond that, we learn that the flesh cannot obey God. Verse 18 through 20, someone going to read that for us. All right, the word sinful nature in the NIV is the flesh... Um, there's nothing good in my flesh. That's what Paul's saying. And, and the flesh is hard to understand, but it's just that internal wicked nature of ours, trainable in evil, been trained for years in evil. And we're gonna find out in the next chapter in just a moment, it cannot submit to God's law. It's impossible, it's just nothing good is in it. But there has been, praise God, a decisive break between me and my flesh. So I can kind of like, almost like an out-of-body experience, I can look at my flesh and say, that's not me. That's not who I am. Now, he's not disavowing that if you fleshly do some evil thing that you need to own up to it and ask forgiveness or whatever. He's not saying that. Of course you do. But he's saying that's not who I am as a new creation being. I hate that stuff. I hate it. I don't ever want to do it again. It's wicked and evil. So nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's what he's saying. For me in my new Christian nature, I have a yearning to do what pleases God. Now just stop there for a moment. Do you not see how much of a work of grace that is, if that's true of you? Why would I say that that's true of you? If you say, I have a deep desire to please God, that that's a, an evidence of sovereign grace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the very end, um, I mean, the next section, he says in my verse 22, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. You just need to understand the unregenerate mind. Cannot say that. So here, you're talking, you're saying, I love God's law, I delight in it, I see the beauty and the symmetry of it, and, the, and I yearn to do it, but, there's that big but, I can't. I keep trying and I can't. I mean, you take a simple thing, all right? Um, what is it? Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. I've looked at that command for years. I mean, like, let's just do that today. All right? I'm not going to utter a single complaint today, not one. I'm going to speak only words of thankfulness and praise no matter what. Lord, no matter what you bring on me today, I'm going to thank you and I'm going to pray. So you're like, don't do that. <laughs> you're like, you're thinking that God's waiting. for you. It's like, well, no, it's like I actually want to say things like that to God because I want to grow. But is there a problem of conceptualizing do everything without complaining or arguing? Do you have a hard time understanding those words? Is that a complex concept for you? Do you know what complaining is? Are you aware of what complaints are? I'm sure you do. You certainly know it when somebody else does it. You don't want to hear that. You're <laughs> around an Eeyore all day long. I don't want to listen to that. But when you do it, not so noticeable. But anyway, um, you're just expressing feelings, you know, thoughts. But it's like, no, I don't want to do that. I, I, don't, I only want to speak words of praise and thanksgiving to God today. And I don't want to dispute with my wife or with anybody else all day long. Okay, it's on. How are you going to do I can see the beauty of it. I can see how much it would help our family life. I could see how much, how much more delightful I would be as a person, as a son of God. But it's just, I can't do it. can't do it. Not because there's anything wrong with Paul's command in Philippians 2. Nothing wrong with it. I just can't do it. So, and that's just one precept, guys. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. There's so many commands in the New Testament. You know what I'm talking about. And it's like, I can't do it. I can't live the Christian life. It's just overwhelming. I see it, it's beautiful, but I just can't do it. That's what he's saying here. So, any, any comments? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I guess verse 22, it seems to be the core in my inner, my inner being, in my, in my heart, from, from the heart. It seems like Matthew 7, he's dealing with hypocrites. He's dealing with Judas. Would Judas, would you, we say of Judas, in my inner being, I delight in the Son of God. Would you say that Judas, in his inner being, delighted in Jesus, the Son of God? We delighted in money, so I think what's happening is there's there's a, a separation of apparent, like the nominal show people, the hypocrites. I think that's we what it. itself, other people. no. We can't <laughs> read people's hearts. I mean, don't, don't you realize that when Jesus said, "What you're about to do, do quickly," and Judas left the room, everybody thought he was going to buy supplies for the feast. So we can't tell from the outside looking in, but we know in, from inside somewhat about our own hearts. And, I, and Paul's saying truthfully, as I look at my heart, I love God's law. I really do. I delight in the Christian life. I just can't seem to live it. So I think there's a difference. Good question. All right, let's finish up uh, Roman, uh, Romans 7. Someone read 21 through 25. So really, you could sum up these comments as Paul's talking about two laws he sees within his life, with his, his heart life. Do you see that? What are the two laws he sees battling here? God's law and the law of sin, God's law and the, law of sin the sin nature. And why does he call it uh, a law of sin at work within my members? Why does he use the word law? It's like the law of gravity. It's a constant force. I mean, don't you sense that sanctification is like rock climbing straight up and gravity's pulling you down the whole time? It's like, like nature is fighting against holiness. You know what I'm talking about, whether it's the desire to sleep rather than pray right you get up in the morning you're going to have you gonna, I'm going to grow in my prayer life all right get up half hour earlier okay earlier than what than you've been doing okay well that's a half hour that your body's used to what sleep and then all right so you kneel down and 11 minutes in you are so peaceful and so tranquil and so asleep <laughs> and it's like uh, what do i have to do to stay awake and actually pray it's hard so there's a pull same thing with sexual temptation lust i mean there's this pull all the time And that's what he's saying. I see a law at work. It's that strong. But there's a corresponding strong law inside where I love the holiness of God and the purity of God and the righteousness. That's every bit as strong in me, Paul's saying. They're battling each other. So in the end, we're going to kind of embody it here with these two, we use the word indwelling. Indwelling sin versus the indwelling spirit. And that, in in Galatians 5, it's straight out. The spirit battles against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit, they're battling each other. So that's, that's Romans 8. I'm going to use these last four minutes, guys, because I want to get to John Owen's stuff um, next week. So let's, let's keep going into Romans Romans 8. I'm going to read this. Romans 8, 1 through 4. All right, so fundamentally, I just want to say the thing the Scottish preacher said. He said to his people, he's preaching through Romans, expositional sermons through Romans. He said, I'm never going to let you out of Romans 7 while I'm your pastor. What does he mean by that? I'm never letting you, congregation, out of Romans 7 while I'm your pastor. I'm not saying he's just like he would never get to Romans 8 in his sermon series. I don't think that's what he meant, but, and I know that's not what you're saying. But what is he saying about that? Yeah, this is going to be an issue the rest of your Christian lives. We're not, I, I think simply we would say I'm not going to teach you perfectionism. That much I'm going to tell you. And, and I think when I get to the idea of killing or slaughtering temptations, slaying temptations, starving sin... I want you to understand the second half. You can't kill any specific sin habit. You just can't kill it. All you can do is weaken it. So that's the lessons of Romans 7. It's going to be an issue the rest of your life. The only way you're going to be practically living holy in that area is vigilance. Awareness, this is an issue. You're not a triumphalist type Christian saying, I know that I've, I've reached the point where I had 26 sin patterns in my life that were really, I was struggling with 10 years ago. Now only four of them give me trouble. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. Tell me about those other 22. No, I, really, it's been amazing. I, I, it's like, oh boy, I would, that would be a weird conversation. I don't think I've ever met anyone like that. But anyway, I mean, somebody it, we're, we're going to be in this. All right, so moving on, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life... By the way, I skipped the words. I'm so sorry. I'm hurrying here. At the end of Romans 7, Paul gives out this lamentable cry, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Someday you will be rescued. This is part of what I tried to unpack last week in Revelation 21.4. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, of pain. Well, I'm going to add to that. There'll be no more indwelling sin nature. You will be free. So Jesus will set you free from the body of death. How beautiful is that? But in the meantime, Paul then reverts in the last verse saying, yet I got these two laws. So that's how it goes. All right. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right, so Romans 8.1, one of the most famous verses in Romans, praise be to God, this whole thing's not gonna condemn your soul to hell. This battle with sin that we have as genuine Christians will not sink you to hell, praise God. There's no condemnation, but it's for a specifically targeted people that there's no condemnation for. Who is it that it's true that there's no condemnation for? Those who are in Christ Jesus, and he spends the next number of verses describing who they are. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Because it's those that have been set free from the law of sin and death by the indwelling Spirit. So it's the work now we have introduced to us, the power of the indwelling Spirit. The Spirit comes in and he enables us by by his power within us Based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, based on that, he enables you to walk in newness of life, or, that's in Romans 6, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that's that whole new way of life. Jay was mentioning this a moment ago. There is a new lifestyle. If that lifestyle is not there, we're not justified. But it's the Spirit filled lifestyle. And so we'll pick up with this next time. Romans 8. And then the last three weeks, next week and two weeks beyond, we're going to be really clinging to John Owen's mortification and learning some of his lessons. But I wanted to base it primarily on Romans 6-8 through that we've been doing. Okay, Ben Zweigel, would you mind closing us, brother, in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org.